0: Waterstone, our mission is to advance God's kingdom to God's glory. In 2020, we have been reading through the Bible together. We are currently learning from the prophets of Israel who deliver God's intentions and promises by pronouncing judgment and proclaiming hope. Join us as we wrestle through the prophecies and see how they reveal the hope of Jesus, the Christ, the King. If you are able, we would love to see you at one of our services in person. We invite you to go to waterstonechurch.org to RSVP for a weekend service time on Saturday evening or Sunday morning.
1: In the movie "Waking Ned Divine," a 10-year-old boy asks a pastor, "Do you ever see God?" And the pastor says, uh, "Not directly, I do get revelations." And then the boy asks the pastor. Do you make a lot of money at your job? And the pastor says, no. The rewards of my work are mostly spiritual. And then the pastor asks the 10-year-old boy, have you ever considered giving your life in service to the church? And the 10-year-old boy says, not really. I don't want to work for someone you never see and who doesn't even pay minimum wage. Do you ever see God? Do you want to? The book of Ezekiel begins with a 30-year-old Jewish priest sitting by an irrigation canal next to his labor camp, in Babylon. It's his 30th birthday, July 31st, 593 B.C., the day he would have entered the priesthood, and he receives a vision from God. Welcome to Love This Book. We're preaching through the entire Bible this year, Genesis to Revelation. We're in a 300-year period during the monarchy of Israel called the prophets. The prophets were sent by God to proclaim the reality of God because His people kept putting God in the margins, kept refashioning God to fit their convenience. And so God would send prophet after prophet to scream, to ream, to challenge, to provoke, to do performance drama, to try and get his people back on mission, to try and get his people back into relationship. You know, in the First Testament, the most commonly used name for prophet in Hebrew literally means seer, S-E-E-R, seer, because the prophets would see sometimes the future, more often god they would get a vision of god to give to his people and so tonight we're going to sit with ezekiel by that irrigation ditch outside of his labor camp in babylon when the heavens open let's sit with ezekiel let's listen to a vision of god
0: A reading from Ezekiel 1. And if I may suggest, it might be a good idea to close your eyes while you listen to this, because this is a very visual text. On my 30th birthday, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kabar River, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the God came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzai by the Kabar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was on him. I looked, and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures." In appearance, their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf, and gleamed like burnished bronze, and under their wings on their four sides, they had human hands. All four of them had faces and wings, and the wings of one of them touched the wings of another, and each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a human being, and on the right side, each had the face of a lion, and on the left side, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their four faces. They each had two wings spreading out upward, each wing touching that of the creature on either side, and each had two other wings carrying its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright, and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. And as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like topaz, and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. And as they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions that the creatures faced. The wheels did not change direction as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved. And when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go. And the wheels would rise along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. And when the creatures moved, they also moved. And when the creatures stood still, they also stood still. And when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked something like a vault, sparkling like crystal and awesome. And under the vault, their wings were stretched out, one toward the other, And each had two wings covering its body. And when the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty and the tumult of an army. And when they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the vault, over their heads, as they stood with lowered wings. And above the vault, over their heads, was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli, And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire. And that from his waist down, he looked like fire. And brilliant light surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. The word of the Lord.
1: We'd like to ask two questions of the text tonight, this vision. First, what is the glory of God? In that final verse... Ezekiel says this was a vision of the glory of the Lord. What is the glory of the Lord? And the second question we'd like to ask, how should we respond to the glory of the Lord? Some background. The year is 600 B.C., what has happened is that uh, another empire has risen to power, Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar, and he's beginning to swallow up nations, and he's knocking on the door of the remaining vestige of the people of Israel, Judah. King Jehoiachin decides that he's actually going to try to resist King Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon like a rowboat trying to conquer an aircraft carrier. And so instead of just Rushing the city, Nebuchadnezzar decides he's going to siege them and just surround them and starve them out. And he also starts taking key people from the city. In fact, he exiles 10,000 people from the city of Jerusalem, their best and their brightest. Not only Ezekiel at the time, this 25-year-old priest, but also a man named Daniel, one of the other prophets, is also carried away in the same exile and taken to Babylon. So this is the background. This is Ezekiel trying to preach to his congregation of 10,000 exiles who are in theological shock asking the question, has God forgotten us? Has God abandoned us? Do we have any future as a nation and a people? Do we have any future of relationship with God? And thus Ezekiel is given 52 oracles from the Lord to give to the people there in exile in Babylon. But as you and I have heard, everything starts with a vision. What I'd like to do is have us just Focus on this vision for a few minutes, walk through it, and hit the high points. In fact, there are so many high points in this vision, it would take months to preach this verse by verse. But tonight, just an overview. You'll notice in verse 4, what stands out all through this vision, and it's the motif that holds the vision together, is this idea of fire, or lightning, or brilliance, I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal. In this vision, lightning is mentioned twice, fire is mentioned three times, brilliant is mentioned four times, sparkling is mentioned five times. What we begin to see is that God is a being whose very essence is light, bright, brilliant, even blinding light, the light of God. And, and again and again, as it describes the light, it keeps coming back to fire. Fire is what holds the, the glue of the text, it's, and it's uh, throughout Scripture. If you read the entire Bible, you'll keep coming back to God as fire. And, and even in Hebrews in the New Testament, the writer of the Hebrews says that our God is a what? Consuming fire. Now, we here in Colorado know a little bit about fire don't we? We know that it can be very useful for cooking, for heating, for lighting. But we also know, sadly, and, and, and sometimes terrifyingly, how dangerous fire can be, how threatening it is to our lives. And so we, we read this sense of God being fire, and it's like, beware the God. Beware it's trauma. What's interesting is if you dig into the commentaries and start reading background on this vision, and the the scholars who know Hebrew and can read ancient Hebrew well, what they will tell you is that grammatically, Ezekiel chapter 1 is a mess. The the, uh, verbs and nouns don't line up in terms of gender or number. Sentences stop and start in the strangest places. And Some sentences go on and on and on, and you begin to realize what we actually just heard read for us is an eyewitness account of a person in trauma. It's interesting when you get to Ezekiel chapter 10, the same vision is shared, perfect grammar weeks later. In chapter 1, beware the God. Trauma. Fire. We go on. The next thing that stands out in the vision we have to see is uh, the four living creatures. In appearance, their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Now, a couple of thoughts, just again to give some understanding of this. In chapter 10, when this vision is retold, Ezekiel lets us know that what these creatures actually were were cherubim. Have you heard of cherubim? Angels a heavenly being. What cherubims are throughout the Bible are guardians of majesty, markers of the boundaries around majesty. They are projectors and protectors of the presence of God. Now we, in our day-to-day life here in America, we don't know much about majesty. We don't know much about guardians of majesty. But I think I've been close to it a time or two in my life even here in America in the mid 90s one of our missionaries had a sister who was actually the campaign leader for the Bill Clinton re-election campaign and uh, this missionary called me up and said hey i've got front row tickets to go down to the western stock show and hear the president of the united states speak now I'm a big fan of the presidents of the United States. I don't care what party. They are all, in my view, worthy of respect. And so I'm there. Now, I get down to the Western Stock Show two hours early. And if some of you remember Bill Clinton. He was notoriously late. So three hours standing in the barn at the Western Stock Show, some speakers start coming up. Yeah, one speaker speaks five minutes. The next speaker, you know, the county officials, the state officials. Another 45 minutes or so of, let's face it, people I did not want to hear uh, talk. So we're three hours and 45 minutes. <laughs> what was funny is after these other lesser speakers started coming up, people started booing. Boo! <laughs> after the last speaker, there was another pause, another delay until finally out comes a Secret Service agent, sunglasses, hands behind his back. He comes and he stands right next to the lectern from which the President of the United States would speak. He looks out at us, and I'm right in the front row. I'm probably 10 feet from him. Looks out, and then from behind his back, he pulls out the seal of the President of the United States, puts it on the lectern, the place erupted. Now, finally, we are going to hear from one of the most powerful individuals in the world. That secret servant agent, though he never would have wanted me to call him this, was a cherubim, a guardian of the majesty, of the office. You know where else I experience the majesty of the presidency of the United States was trying to get out of the crowd after everything was all over. They stopped us at the outside of the Western Stock Show so that by the time I started counting, many had already gone by. I counted 30 black Chevy Suburbans in the train of the president of the United States. Wow, all of that passed. Majesty, the voice of the one who has authority. Now, Couple of things would have been interesting. First, no one in the ancient world hearing this vision would have been like we were saying, huh? cherubims with four faces? What's all this mean? In the ancient world, if you were to go to any temple or palace in Mesopotamia, you would have seen these creatures carved into the walls. I I put a picture up of one for you. This is in uh, modern-day Iraq. You can still see on the wall. I know it's very difficult to see, but that's a cherubim. That's the guardian of the majesty of one of the kings, uh, Ashurbanipal II. The second uh, in, in the later Babylonian Empire. So it was not a surprise. None of this was to Ezekiel's contemporaries. They could visualize and actually see what he was talking about. Now, I think the other thing that we have to take notice is that the four faces are descriptive, very descriptive, right? Each cherubim had four faces. One was a lion. What's a lion? Kids, what's a lion? Oh, strength, right? You don't want to be around a lion, unless there's glass there. What's the next one? An eagle. What's an eagle? Swift and quick vision of everything there is to see. And the other face is a bull. What's a bull? In the ancient world, a bull was known for procreative power. And kids, ask your parents about that after the service. Procreative power. And the last face was that of a human being. What's a human being? Regal reasoning, thinking power. So you see each one of these a facet of what it's like to be in the presence of God. Power, strength, kingly reason, quick vision. It's an amazing picture of what the presence of God is like. And then we go on, because at the bottom of each of these cherubim, by the way, they have four wings touching around them and four wings touching above them. It's like a big traveling box of the presence of God. And then we see in the bottom, they have wheels. And as they're described in verses 15 to 18, it's like gyroscopes. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like topaz, And all four wheels look alike. Some translations of topaz are also the gem barrel. Whatever it was, it was one of the gems in the ancient world that looked like it had a light inside of it. So as it would be spinning on the wheels, it'd be like sparks flying out. It'd be this brightness going on. But what's really interesting in terms of the gyroscopes that they were hovering, if you were to go on and read, it also talks they were full of eyes. Like eyes were the rims around these wheels. Wow. Bright, flashing wheels with eyes as rims. Speaking all of these powered by the Holy Spirit, moving all over the world the idea of God being everywhere present and all-knowing, all-seeing. Well, you get finally to verse 26. So you have the fire and you have the four living creatures and you have these wheels. And then it comes to this. What the cherubim were holding up above the vault over their heads was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli, and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. Lapis lazuli was the most precious gem known in the ancient world, and I want you to see that it's actually used to make the floor. It's we, we ran into lapis lazuli earlier in Love This Book when we preached in Exodus. And we remembered Moses and the 70 elders actually getting glimpse of the floor of God's presence. And it was lapis lazuli. What is most precious to us is simply the pavement in heaven. Where God's feet sit, rest, stand. And on the throne a figure like the Son of Man. What's interesting is Ezekiel goes on later in the prophecies and other oracles to describe the Son of Man, how beautiful, how powerful, how fiery he is. It's the same Son of Man that Daniel sees in Daniel chapter 7 in another vision. And here's what's interesting. You remember that when Jesus lived among us 2,000 years ago, Whenever he would refer to himself in the third person, that is, whenever he wanted to call himself by a name or a title, do you remember what he called himself? The Son of Man. What does the Son of Man mean? It means that what the cherubim were carrying was Jesus. Make of it what you will. There is Jesus in his glory before he came to us. Now, what does this glory mean? It means an infinite amount of things that we should be talking about. But tonight, just two. We'll start with A and B. What this glory means is that God is above all things above. Now, I want to go back to verse 28. Sorry, Tara, I'm jumping you around here. That's my bad. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, this is the last verse of the vision, was the radiance around Jesus, around the Son of Man. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell face down. I said this is trauma writing." It's almost as if Ezekiel doesn't quite know how to describe what he's just seen. The appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. In other words, what he just has seen is indescribable. He doesn't know how to put it into words. That's what glory is. Glory of the Lord is this idea of all of God's attributes and features being thrown into a divine mixing bowl. Everything that's symboled in the vision, all those eyes, that means God knows all things. The, the lion and the bull, God is all powerful. The, um, the wheels going to the four parts of the world, God is everywhere present. Put that in the bowl. And when you mix all of those attributes together, what do you make? Glory. The glory of God. The glory is the sum of all his attributes it's what makes God, God. All of these symbols of attributes describe the greatness of the glory of God. It's like, you know, these, this idea of glory is essential to God, just like blue is essential to sky. You don't make the sky blue. It is blue, It's like wet is to water. You don't make water wet. It is wet. It's like light to the sun. You don't make sunlight light. It is light. You don't make God glorious. He is glorious. He has glory innate, innate to his being. Intrinsic to his life is this glory. It's not so with human beings. You can put a a man or a woman up and give him 30 Suburbans to drive him around and a seal when he speaks, but one day, that won't be his anymore. One day, every woman or man will lose any and all glory that they accrued here when they die. Glory is not intrinsic to us. We can't keep it. Glory is intrinsic to the Most High God. We cannot detract it. We cannot add to it. God is glorious. Are you thinking about him with me? Because he's glorious, he is above all things. You know, in Hebrew, the word glory is the word weight or heavy, substance, matter. God, because of his glory, is the being that must matter most in our lives. His glory should be the heaviest thing in our lives. So this past July 15th when we all had to pay our taxes, if you were not honest on your tax return, overlook some income intentionally, that means that money mattered more to you than the glory of God. If you're thinking about leaving your marriage for not a biblical reason, whether it's adultery or desertion or abuse, but mainly because you're sick and tired and you want to be happy. That means that that person or another person weighs more in your life than God does. If you are younger and just had a relationship, and whether you're in high school, college, early years, those volatile, like uh, all heart relationships, which we've all survived at some point. Those volatile, like intense, young love relationships. But some of you here thinking that you'll never be the same after that. In fact, maybe you've even had suicidal thoughts. You're giving that person too much glory. And when you give glory... That's lesser glory. It can't hold your life together. Mary Jo Sales wrote this amazing book called American Girls. And the subtitle is Social Media and the Secret Lives of Teenagers. And for her research, she interviewed teenagers all over our country. She was in a mall in Los Angeles, walked up to a group of girls, struck up a conversation, and she asked them about social media. And the girl said, one particular girl said, Social media is ruining my life. It's so cruel and relentless. And Mary Joseph says, Well, why don't you get off? And then the girl said, Without social media, I would have no life. Wait. And when we give weight to lesser glories, it cannot hold our lives together. The second thing glory means is not only that God is above all things, but it also means God is beyond all things. It means that seeing this God, even though He wants to be known and we can know God, and even though He wants to be understood and we can understand the Bible, there will be parts of God, Him being infinitely glorious, that we will never understand. God is mystery. God is beyond our imaginations and our understanding. If we ever think we understand God, you probably are not understanding the true God. We will never understand all that God is. And that's why I would argue that in our culture, it's the gloriousness of God that our culture resists the most. Why? Because we like a God we can understand. We want a God who's agreeable. We want a God who never pushes back. We want a God who endorses all the beliefs of our political party. We, We want a God who won't be trauma to us. We want a nice God. Reminded me of a story that I read a few years back by Daniel Taylor. He wrote a book to his children called Letters to My Children, and one of his children asked him, and some of you children, listen, you might might ask your parents this question. Church is getting boring. Why do we have to go to church? You can ask your parents that question after we're done tonight. Church is getting boring. Why do we have to go to church? Here's what Daniel Taylor wrote to his child. Think about it. If a friend of yours called and said that a famous athlete or singer was going to be at his house and asked if you wanted to come over, wouldn't you go? And wouldn't you be excited? Of course. And so would I. Well, the church is the place where God will be every time you go. Of course, He's there uh, whether you're in church or not, but He can be there in a special way when many believers gather together to celebrate Him. Sounds great, I hear you saying, but how come you fall asleep so much in church, Dad? If God is really there, I mean really, really there, then how come you aren't bug-eyed and breathless most of the time? Well, that's a very good question. I wish I had a very good answer. Part of it is that God knows we can't take very much of Him. It's like when you hold Fluffy, our hamster, If you squeeze Fluffy very hard, Fluffy would be on his way to hamster heaven. You have to hold him gently and talk to him quietly. Well, God has to sort of be like that with us. Truthfully, though, the biggest reason might be that we don't want very much of God. We want God to stay in his cage like Fluffy does. We're afraid of losing control of our own lives. We just want him to help us a little here and forgive us a little there and let us handle the rest. And so we try to make church a safe place where we can get a little bit of God, but not too much. We don't like surprises, not even from God. So we make our churches places where surprises aren't likely to happen. We ask God to come, but only if he'll be polite. And therefore, little kids and adult kids often fall asleep, even with their eyes open. God, in his glory, is above all things and beyond all things. That's what the glory of God is His weight. How do we respond? Look at the last verse again. Here's how Ezekiel responded. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell face down. The way we respond with Ezekiel to the glory of the Lord is to fall face down down. What does that mean? At least two things. First, it means a posture, right? Face down. A posture of the heart. A submission of every part of our lives to God. Everything. Uh, Many of you know I I grew up in Pennsylvania. I'm a Penn State fan. Was a Steelers fan for many years until the, you have to root for Broncos if you live in Denver, One of my favorite players when I was a a boy and a teenager was, you may have heard of him, a guy named Franco Harris. Not only was he a Steeler, he was a Penn State running back, which means that he glowed everywhere he walked. (laughs) One time, Franco Harris was in San Francisco. The Steelers were going to play the 49ers, and uh, he was at a restaurant the night before the game. If you've met Franco Harris, and my mother in law, Ginny Echo, has, ask her about him. Franco was a very engaging individual and would strike up, well, let's just say he never met a stranger. He was eating at the restaurant, the table next to him had an eight year old girl sitting at the table. And this eight year old girl had been a lifelong, which means eight year, Steeler fan. Franco Harris is sitting at the table next to her. They start up a conversation. The waiter comes to take the order from Franco Harris. Franco Harris looks at the girl's plate, and just to be sweet and honoring to the girl, he says, I'll have what she's having. So the girl at the next table gets up from her chair with her plate and takes it over to Franco Harris. That's the proper response to glory. And if that's the way we should respond to a Penn State running back, how much more the glory of God? It's a posture of submission. Do you know in the New Testament, the Greek word for worship, the main one, means to kiss. I'd like to remind you of this. It's not a Jesus is my boyfriend kiss. It's not even a family kiss. Do you know what it means to worship and kiss? It means to kiss the ring of the king. And to kiss the ring of the king, you bare your neck. And every part of your life is exposed to glory your work is exposed to glory. Do you ever ask God what you, you should be doing? We, you're doing what you're doing, and all of it's good, and every, every vocation is ministry. But do you ever bow your neck of work and say, Lord, is this what you want me to be doing? And let me push it just a little further. Do you ever ask God as you bow, God, where would you like me to be doing this work? Just a few weeks ago, we sent our, our latest missionary to Ireland. Anyone else? Who's next? Every two years, we have our strategic objectives is to send a family or an individual across the globe an in international ministry. No matter what you do, do you have to do it here? Can you do it over there and take Waterstone with you? Ask God about your work and the where. How about worship? Now, we worship in church, and every one of you matters to us. But do you ever take the time to ask God, where should I go to church? Where should I worship? You know, I remind you, we're starting a church plant, Resilience. We hope to launch online, they do, this fall. We want 75 people to go with resilience from Waterstone. We have roughly 20. We've got a ways to go. I'm asking you. No, I'm not. While I am asking. Are you willing to bow your neck and say, God, where do you want me to worship? Could it be with resilience church? I'm asking you to consider this. Even for six months or for a year, would you go? and advance God's kingdom by helping us launch the next church from Waterstone. Where do you want me to worship? That's the first response to glory, is to bow the neck, to, to have this posture. The second response is pursuit, and I'll be quick around this. It, part of what responding to glory means is pursuing God. At when, when Ezekiel, was, when he fell face down, Nothing else mattered at that moment. Nothing else. He wasn't worrying about what his dinner's going to be. He wasn't worried about his broken down car. Wasn't worrying about anything else. Just focused on the glory of God. Do you pursue the glory of God? You think, well, what do you want me to do? Go sit by a river and ask for a vision? Well, that would be a good start. Have you ever done that? (laughs) Start there. But I think if you read through Scripture, it's other pursuits of glory as well. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Do you know what part of pursuing God's glory means, especially during COVID? Outside. Some of you need to get up five minutes earlier and just go out in your backyard, in your chair, and let the warmth of the sun hit your face in the morning and say, thank you, God. You are glorious. You need to be outside. I think the other thing it means during COVID, pursuing God's glory, is not settling for lesser glories. Namely, screens. Anything that's artificial glory. What do you mean? I mean puzzles with family. I mean cooking meals together, eating dinners together, you know getting with friends, going for walks with friends, because the other part of glory is not just the outdoors, but it's in Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when sisters and brothers live together in unity. Are you willing to pursue that glory? It's God wants to show himself glorious to you. Well, what's the motivation to do all of this? Did you see back in Exodus 128, where all this ended? A rainbow. (laughs) Like the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. It's the first time the word rainbow has occurred since Genesis chapter 9, since the flood. And in Hebrew, the word rainbow can either mean rainbow or warrior bow. And we remember what happened at the flood. Our sin darkened the sky, but God's grace made it into a rainbow. And that Son of Man, that Jesus, When he left his throne and that pre-existing glory to come and take on human form and live among us, he did the same thing. He turned our sin into a rainbow. The most glorious thing that's ever happened in the world is when the Son of God left his glory in order so we could see the glory of God in the face of Christ. So let's pray to him tonight to fill our hearts with the glory of God. Uh, It's a prayer from the Puritans, the Valley of Vision. Uh, I'll be the the minister and you be the uh, congregation. Let's pray. Glorious God, it is the flame of my life to worship you and the crown and glory of my soul to adore you. Give me power by your Spirit to help me live in worship so that I can boundary the world, be brought into fullness of life, and be refreshed and captured by peace. Give me knowledge of your goodness that I might not be in dread of your greatness. Give me Jesus so that I might draw near to you with family love with holy boldness. Jesus Christ is my mediator, brother, interpreter, branch, king, lamb. In him I glorify. In him I am set on high. Crowns to give I have none, but what I have given I return. Content to feel that everything is mine when it is yours and the more fully mine when I have yielded it to you. Let me live wholly to my Savior, free from distractions, from disturbing wants, from hindrances to the pursuit of the narrow way. I am pardoned through the blood of Jesus Christ. Give me a new sense of it. Continue to pour it over my life that I may come every day to the fountain to be washed anew so that I may worship you always in spirit and truth.
0: Amen.